to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm today's host, Franz Rasman, and I sit down with Howard Mervokin. After graduating from Penn Law, Howard worked at a number of high-profile law firms, investment banks, on the buy side of BlackRock, as an operator, and now as a venture capitalist with Mosaic Partners. Howard co-founded Mosaic in 2011 with Miles Kilburn. Since its founding, Mosaic has made nearly 30 investments in early-stage enterprise fintech companies solving major pain points in large B2B markets, such as payments, banking, and insurance. Today's episode offers a peek inside the world of early-stage fintech venture capital, including why Howard started his own fund, serving as a partner to portfolio companies, and the biggest changes he's seen over the past decade working in fintech. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mosaic's Howard Merkelkamp. Hi, Howard, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you on as a guest. No, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Can I ask where you're located at the moment and what you've been up to these past couple months? I'm located in the uh, East Bay at my home office. I mean, the last few months have been uh, quite active, actually. I mean, obviously, from a, just a, a fund management standpoint, many audits, taxes to do for many entities, et cetera, uh, follow-on investments, uh, new investments, looking at SPACs. It's a very dynamic time, and we're raising our third fund. So we're keeping our lawyers uh, very busy. Very busy indeed. And given that you're in the Bay Area, I have to ask, is San Francisco dead? Will Mosaic be moving to Austin or Miami? Funny you say that. We, um, <laughs> we've been in the Bay Area for quite some time. We just hired a new partner who, who lives in San Francisco. So that does free up my partner and myself to move elsewhere if we so deem fit. So we'll see. Uh, we love the Bay Area. Obviously, it's, it's dynamic, both from an investing standpoint, but just from a, a weather and lifestyle standpoint. Uh, it's a wonderful place to be. It has its challenges, but then again, every, every place does. So no current plans to leave. And we invest all over the country and including outside of the country. So we can work from anywhere. So it's really more of a, a lifestyle issue. Absolutely. And no better place to be for VC than the Bay Area. Absolutely. To begin, could you maybe walk us through a bit of your background and take us up to the point when you co-founded Mosaic Partners? Sure. So I have kind of the traditional pedigree at Ivy League schools, went to Columbia undergrad. So that's how I got introduced to New York City. Decided to go the legal route rather than straight to finance, like many of my uh, friends and colleagues uh, did back in the day. And this was in the uh, late 80s. I graduated college in 90. Uh, so I went to Penn Law for 1993, worked during school at Morris Nichols and Deckard Price and Rhodes. I guess it's Deckard now, kind of you know learning the corporate law ropes. And then uh, was recruited to Cravath for my first job out of uh, law school in 93. Spent a year there in the general's kind of program, working on IPOs, M&A, et cetera. Quickly realized that M&A is all I really enjoyed uh, as a lawyer and quite frankly, as a banker as well. So I went over to uh, Wachtell, and that's where uh, I kind of cut my teeth as an M&A lawyer and primarily worked uh, in the financial services group with Ed Hurley and his team. That was my first introduction to the financial services segment and market and what ultimately, you know, I specialize in fintech. So that was my baptism there. Moved on from Wachtell in 99 to uh, the investment banking side, to Merrill Lynch and their FIG group, the Financial Institutions Group which you know, covered banks, insurance companies, all financial firms globally. I specialized in financial technology back in 99. It was just beginning, actually Bob Heyer out of Solomon's with Barney kind of started kind of the street coverage of fintech companies. Uh, Visa was owned by the banks, so with debit card network, et cetera. But these private companies were starting to get large enough to 
be noticed by the bullish bracket firms on Wall Street you know, becoming billion-dollar companies. Billion actually meant something back then. Uh, I know it's it's chum change nowadays, but that was kind of the minimum threshold for interest by the bulge bracket firms. And fintech was coming along, lots of private companies, uh, et cetera, demutualizations of the networks and making them public companies. And they've obviously done very well since then. So that's where I became a fintech specialist doing M&A, a couple IPOs, but mostly uh, M&A kind of globally uh, at, at Merrill Lynch. I then moved on to the buy side, private equity side, and operations. So went to a subsidiary of a private equity firm out of New York that was based in California, Napa of all places, focused on bill print and remittance. They had operations throughout the US. So work, they were a carve out of a bunch of banks. So I worked kind of gussied them up for sale, if you will, and kind of cut my teeth uh, from an operating perspective, um, as well as working with a private equity firm. Went on to uh, BlackRock to start a growth equity fund. That was kind of my first uh, kind of move into the buy side uh, private equity world. Then did another entrepreneurial stint moving back to Napa to run a uh, consumer products company for a while. And then in 2011, uh, formed Mosaic Partners with uh, my partner and let's say we just brought our third partner to focus on venture investing in uh, enterprise fintech. Amazing. That's a very diverse background from law to banking to PE. I'm curious, in 2011, how did you know that was the right time to start a fund? Yeah, so it was, I want to say it's happenstance, but what we saw in the marketplace was that through our connections, we knew that fintech was having a moment and primarily it was driven by technology changes and technology changes as well as a little bit of regulatory environment, but more kind of the perception by the large, bold, you know, the large banks, insurance companies, et cetera. Kind of then changing environment. First and foremost, you know, back in the day, you used to have to spend tens of millions of dollars to buy your own server farms, uh, security, compliance, et cetera, and have a balance sheet big enough that a Credit Suisse or JP Morgan wants to even talk to you, right? Too much risk. What had happened with increased processing power, the Amazons of the you know, AWSs of the world, it used to be called co-location, now it's just uh, cloud computing. And obviously the internet and the speed of the internet allowed for entrepreneurs to build financial technology products and also compliance to be quite frank compliance became i don't say a commodity but it was cheap you know they had plenty of consultants knew how to get you compliant so all the costs to go to market with a product to build an, an initial product to go to market plummeted down to you just needed a couple million bucks a good idea and a team that knew what they were doing to build something that they could sell to these banks, insurance companies, asset managers, et cetera. And that entire market had realized that they needed these companies and that they could take the risk of using a product from a company that didn't have millions and millions on their balance sheet of quote at-risk capital. So with all that, we kept getting hounded through our network for, do we know someone who wants to invest a couple million bucks? And all of the folks we had worked with uh, in private equity markets over the day, FTV Capital, uh, which used to be called FT, you know, financial technology ventures. Now it's capital because they can't write checks below 30, 35 million bucks. They were all very successful, all the private equity folks who really understand financial services environment. And there are very few venture early stage focused funds that could write the smaller check and take the risks in this particular market. So we kept getting approached and we realized that oh, there's a lot of white space here. Now's the time. There's a need for capital at this kind of zero revenue to 10 million run rate revenue. Very few people who really understand the industry 
providing that kind of capital. Obviously, there have always been generalists who will, you know, once in a while, though they tend to, again, it's a very unique area where we focus. So we, time was right, uh, stars aligned, and both of us just happened to be, we had met back in 2000 when he was a COO of uh, Star Financial. We sold that to Concord. And see, that was a $1.2 billion deal. So we knew each other for a long time and our style, our stars aligned as well. So we got married, so to speak. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the perfect storm of sort of what was happening with the technology at the time, as well as just your personal network looking to deploy some capital. So with that, can you talk a bit about Mosaic Partners investing style? Sort of what does Mosaic's funnel look like? Yeah, so we are an early stage venture firm, even though we act like a equity firm in terms of our concentration and portfolio. So we only have 10 to 15 companies per fund. Our optimal fund size would be 200, 250 per fund. So we're putting out between 10, 15 million per company to, again, get them in our experience in our space from zero to 10 million run rate. So we're first and foremost sector focused on enterprise financial technology. That's B2B, B2B to C type companies, no real consumer facing enterprises. So again, early stage venture with growth equity perspective and concentration, smaller check sizes. Like I said, we usually go in three to five million. Uh, to get them started, knowing that we need you know 2x that, if not 3x that, to get them to that momentum that's endemic to the sector uh, that we're focused in, just the long sales cycles, et cetera. So that's us in a nutshell. Perfect. And with so much money sloshing around from other VCs or growth equity funds, I'm curious, how does Mosaic differentiate itself from other VCs? Yeah, I think it's several different vectors. First and foremost, it's, it's where we focus. You, know, you read a lot about enterprise, financial technology, and B2B, and everyone's interested in it. The challenges in the space are that the ecosystem is uh, very complex. Many different players with different motivations that have been around for a long time, and plenty of elephants running around, uh, like all the big banks, all the big insurers, asset managers, you name it, the exchanges, the data providers, all the intermediaries they deal with, and vendors, massive change all very complex relationships and pricing. Just trying to understand how consumer payments and credit cards work is mind-boggling when you get into the economics of it. But And that's all wrapped in the tightest regulation other than perhaps healthcare, right? which is also a changing environment. So with all that dynamic, the only way you really have any true understanding of the risks, rewards, and how to sell in this market a product as a business is if you've been in it for I'd say it decades, and we all have the scars to prove it in this space. So while you can, and there are plenty of generalists investing in fintech everywhere, right, and in B two B, they tend to not show up at our party, if you will, because again, we invest in the plumbing of the financial industry. Trust me, it doesn't sound sexy, but if you just look at multiples, the size of the B two B, the back end enterprise market in financial service dwarfs the consumer side. You're just like B two B payments is three to five X in terms of trillions, the amount of, of consumer payments business. Um, so the opportunity is massive, but the sales cycles are very long. The intricacies of getting a company from zero revenue, 10 million of revenue are far more challenging than throwing money at it. So for instance, you cannot just dump 10, 20, 30, $50 million in a company and accelerate sales to the likes of Citibank Credit Suisse, so they just don't care. <laughs> they have, they have, they're going to run their process, bet you, et cetera. Unlike consumer models where digital advertising, et cetera, you can actually buy revenue for what it's worth uh, or in various ways accelerate it with the use of capital. Don't have that in enterprising uh, fintech. 
to that degree. So the space we're in, we have a unique network that we've built up being operators, investors, advisors, uh, my partner was a lawyer as well. Both partners are we're lawyers as well, that we can leverage to assist us in this effort. So I think that's the main differentiator is our longevity and experience in this space relative to other peers that play at this stage of the market. There are plenty of highly competent and more competent than us investors upstream who we work with dynamically. They send us two deals that are too small and we feed them a hopefully a successful portfolio of companies that we grow. They can invest in as we get bigger. That's really interesting. And I think you did a good job of making the plumbing sound as sexy as possible. <laughs> I do my best. Yeah. So all three partners are former lawyers. I know your background lawyer and then investment banking. I imagine you've spent countless, countless hours drafting term sheets. I'm curious what deal terms other than valuation you find most important. Yeah. Again, I, I kind of alluded to it. We view our portfolio more from the lens of a private equity perspective. I want to say control, but more of a really strong partnership. We, in fact, it's not being bold, we view ourselves as kind of the, 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 the last founder at the table for the companies we join. And that's what they need, right? They're, they're really all going to market, have zero, couple million of revenue. They just have their first distribution deal signed or their first customer or two starting to use their product and a handful of people in their organizations, 10, 15. They're looking for every kind of help. <laughs> they need legal help. They need pricing strategy help. They need hiring, firing help. They need just, you know, what do we need a marketing person type of questions answered. And they're and being B2B, they're playing with very savvy counterparties who have very large teams who can overwhelm them very quickly. And unfortunately, you can make some, you think they're relatively small mistakes uh, as a small company uh, in this market that can have severe impact on you negatively going forward. So first and foremost, we take a board seat and we take uh, very strong governance rights that really allow us to help them help themselves and ensure that all of us are aligned in interest. Because again, you don't know who's going to be the next investor and what have you. You have to set the tone from the beginning that, look, we need to make sure that we're all singing from the same pew. Because any kind of strife or conflict at a board or management level or shareholder level is devastating at these early stages, You know, kind of birthing these ideas and going to market. So, so I would say the governance terms are number one. Obviously, valuation is always there, but governance is, is certainly probably the most important. You know, What information you get is investor rights, what have you, are quite frankly, less meaningful simply because we tend to lead our rounds be the only investor oftentimes and in the initial investments investment and obviously bring in other people as they start to mature. So we have plenty of, I'd say leverage, but we have plenty of opportunity to have our voice heard <laughs> when we're the only source of capital. So anyway, that gives you a little perspective. It's really about forming a partnership, if you will, with the entrepreneurs, as opposed to any particular term. I love that partnership model where an investment is more than just writing a check. So Mosaic seeks to invest in early stage enterprise fintech companies, solving major pain points in large B2B markets. 10 years after founding Mosaic, what are some major pain points that you still see as waiting to be addressed? Yeah, it's interesting because it doesn't move that quickly. <laughs> so in other words, it really is a, a decade long, long cycle, almost generational within these organizations. And you have to remember all of the large financial institutions around the globe have grown over decades, many decades, 
And much of that growth has come through acquisition. So every time these two of these firms come together, let alone tens, if not hundreds of them over the years, they add different server farms, different applications, different data warehouses. Invariably, they are never fully connected or migrated or centralized or otherwise. You'd be amazed, but most large financial institutions still have COBOL as a language somewhere in the weeds of their organization. And some poor person in IT who has to manage those systems. Uh, There are band-aids everywhere. In fact, I think most people would be shocked at how fragile the global financial systems can be. This is why they spend so much money on resources Folks who literally just find exceptions around the world. They have uh, folks in India, literally entire villages, towns built to handle overnight exceptions processing with Excel spreadsheets and kind of point tools. So I guess my point is that there are so many issues within and between these banks, and it exemplifies itself in a number of different different ways. But most importantly, it's today, it's, it's showing itself as issues around data, just How do you aggregate that data? How do you homogenize that data and make sure that it's accurate end to end? This is where, again, right now they're doing it by just throwing body count at it. So when things go awry, they just have plenty of people to fix it as fast as they can. And then once you've homogenized and cleansed your data, uh, how do you access that data? And then how do you, and kind of the last part, which is still, we're at the very beginning parts of it. I think most firms right now are working on the first part of aggregating and cleansing, homogenizing their data. The next step, called the next 10 years, and we have a couple of investments in it, it's about how can you use that data effectively? And obviously, this is consistent with what you read about like Facebook, and, you know, kind of consumer side of things, kind of issues around data. But how can you put that data to use for your businesses, your clients, your vendors, and not just with data scientists, but how do you make it actionable on a real-time basis across the organization and operations at a senior level, at an operating level. So I think that's what we have seen over the last few years and kind of going forward. It really is coming down to fixing all the data issues within these organizations. And again, I can't highlight tons of specific pain points, but there are so many different opportunities to go into an organization and to provide a solution for different pieces of that puzzle. And then you can imagine between organizations, whether it's exchanges, settlement, et cetera, you not only have to fix the data in a company, then you have to fix how companies communicate data amongst themselves to ensure that, again, traceability of the data, auditability of the data, et cetera, and then wrap all that with regulation and you have just just pain everywhere. So what I'm saying is there's just a lot of pain all around. And we and we seek uh, companies that are you know either a point solution for something specific that all these banks have uh, or that can provide uh, a value, or a platform that can be used for a number of different you know, use cases, if you will. So kind of both flavors of vanilla in that regard. Yeah, certainly a lot of pain. And the Band-Aid approach and throwing bodies at it is, is definitely not the most elegant solution. Um, so you, you touched a bit on some of your portfolio companies. And I wanted to talk briefly about Boost, player in the B2B payment space. So can you walk us through that investment process from sourcing to signing? I understand Boost had a somewhat unique origin story. Yes. So Boost, what they do is they are essentially the network of B2B payments utilizing uh, virtual cards. So it's large enterprises paying their vendors and everyone's heard of purchase cards. So every large 
enterprise uh, bank, JP Morgan, Citibank, what have you, has a treasury department that will provide a purchase card. So employees and, and can, can buy from other businesses, vendors uh, on those cards. And that's one way you can pay. Obviously, you can pay with the ACH, you can pay with wire transfer, et cetera. The long story short is that the credit card rails that Visa, NASCAR, Amex, the biggest ones, use to transfer money and settle and reconcile amongst the various parties that consumers are obviously very used to, they work for B2B too. The challenge is it's a lot more complex. B2B payments, it's been a problem that people have been trying to fix for literally decades. You have highly complex invoices. You have terms about kind of discounts, depending on how fast you pay. You have working capital issues. You have account reconciliations. You have chargebacks. You have you know dispute resolution. There's just a whole number of issues you just don't have when you swipe a credit card at a POS terminal. And we have risk that all these different elements uh, create. And so what Boost does, they sit between, they essentially sit between the, the vendor and the payer, the buyer of products, and they enable straight through processing of this highly complex set of transactions. And they've built a, a unique platform that um, does exactly that. They're like Switzerland or a Swiss bank, more like it, where they allow the buyer to simply through their ERP system, authorize a payment, they, and they and their vendor can set up whatever terms dynamically, it's actually called dynamic boost, how payments should be routed and what payment you know, economics, depending on you know, what is paid, when is paid, et cetera, uh, apply. And they don't have to touch any of the credit card information or any of the reconciliation. It goes, flows straight through and it's matched and all reconciled at the vendor's side in their ERP system. So the vendors who complain about literally have teams of people trying to reconcile these types of payments and put them in their systems, save a ton of efficiency, get paid faster. And the payor, it's a much simpler economic, you know, from a cost standpoint, uh, transfer of value, and they get their economic terms that they bargained with. So they're the only ones doing it. You read a lot about the Avid exchanges and Coupas on the uh, accounts payable side. So a lot of technology, a lot of investments have been uh, made in companies. We have really sold it to uh, uh, Fleetcore Invoice Pay. Um, that focuses on helping companies manage their payables uh, and basically go in and uh, electronify the invoices they receive, manage the whole payables process, and then push a button and pay. That would go to Boost. And then you have a lot of investment on the AR side, uh, accounts people side, in helping small businesses, smaller businesses, or large businesses accept those payments and reconcile them. Boost basically sits in between all of those folks and acts like the B2B network for payments. Uh, and as I alluded to before, B2B payments, I believe, are roughly $15 trillion a year to the $3 trillion consumer payments. So the size is ginormous and everyone's racing to get a piece of it. So how we came to Boost is that Dean, the CEO, founded it back in that's a long time ago, 2006. He's from the payments industry. He um, saw the opportunity. He can, like I said, it's been around a long time, but he saw a way to fix it by building this kind of straight through processing platform. Started it just before the Great Recession, so timing couldn't have been better. Strangely, he got some financing, some complex financing is what it is. You, know, you, you take what you can get at those stages. MasterCard helped fund him through the Great Recession, marketing dollars, actually invested a good $4 million bucks to get him started and down the path. Uh, and then we came in and the challenge, quite frankly, was through our, he came in through our network of folks. He's, again, right down the middle of plate. We have a lot of payments background and a lot of our LPs um, have built uh, fantastic payments businesses that have been sold over the years. So he came, you know, he was introduced to us. We immediately saw the value of his platform. His challenge was he had a cap table that was just a mess. 
quite frankly, he didn't own any of the company anymore. <laughs> that was part of the problem, right? And this is not an uncommon refrain. You'll find that, you know, just through the nature of the beast, you know, it takes too long, fundraising environment, et cetera. Founders can soon find themselves diluted down to very little, just as they're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel kind of go into market. And that needs to be fixed. And so what that takes is an effort and kind of tie it back to the legal side of things. It takes a legal effort. Uh, you have to be able to think through kind of corporate structures and kind of how the different tools you have to address these issues, whether it's options, you know, restructurings, et cetera. And um, we did that. We spent several months working with him and his uh, then current, they're still great investors uh, and partners to make this a win-win scenario for everybody. And this was one example where the legal education and having spent time working at firms dealing with these types of sticky and tricky corporate restructuring issues was helpful. We did exactly that. We set him up for success. He owns still today over 20% of the company now, even after we've, we're just finishing off. We're actually just about to do our Series C. We came in a Series A2 and uh, the company is now valued at, let's just say, 10x where, where we came in uh, as of this round. Um, so everyone wins, everyone's happy. And it's been, I guess, four years now. And you know, again, not without struggles during that four years as well, but it was definitely birthed out of a, a hard effort to correct just what had been done before. I'm sure he's thrilled 10x and he's gotten a larger equity stake. And, oh, he's, so just, and he's just starting. He, he's yeah. going to be a billion dollar company, I guarantee you. Yeah, he's on the right path. That's awesome. So it sounds like a messy cap table is not going to hold back Mosaic from investing. I'm curious when you're doing due diligence, is there anything that's maybe an automatic deal breaker? Or on the contrary, is there anything that you hear it and it just piques your interest right away? Yeah. So, you know, I guess kind of one of our differentiators is because of our background of having seen so many deals of all sorts, shapes, sizes, kind of you name it from all perspectives, financial as bankers, et cetera. Our, our third partner is, is a career investment banker after leaving law. So we are uniquely positioned to tackle any situation and come up with a solution for it. So when it comes to kind of what are the parameters around a company's status, we can generally deal with anything if we want to, obviously, right? But there, there's always a way, you know, we say. We've yet to come across a situation we couldn't address and work through. But what you can't work through and what is the red flag is when you have a team, and I mean, not just the management team, the current board, the investors around the table, the constituents at the company at the time, if, and I think I alluded to it before, if there's discord or a lack of transparency or anything to suggest that trust doesn't exist among all those parties and that their interests are not aligned, that's just, we walk away. Uh, and I'll just be frank about it. There's plenty of other opportunities to invest. We have a highly concentrated portfolio, so we don't need to make any investments. So the one thing that will kill an early stage company is almost unfixable is when you have, like I say, discord, lack of trucks, lack of transparency, any kind of shenanigans whatsoever. It's just too, it is too much risk. I mean, all you have at a company of those size, because again, diligence is easy. They don't have any contracts. Maybe they have one or two. Corporate structure is very simple. There's really not much to diligence other than the people and how they have performed. And performance, quite frankly, is how you gotten from an idea to, all right, now we've got a product to go to market. You financed it with some, you know, a little bit and, and how you've conducted yourself during that phase. Because we're getting in when there's no real 
data to back up, uh, like in a growth equity situation, we say, oh, great, you got an X run rate, easy ramp, you know, you can show metrics, uh, you know, ROI on investments, CACs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we get in early that we have to believe because of our experience that we know or have high conviction this is a, a workable business model. This team knows what they're doing. So it's kind of speaking of things that we have to look for, they have to know this industry. As I said before, it's a very complex one. And you don't just graduate from Stanford and uh, disrupt Visa. And by the way, there are so many pitches I've got now where they, you know, in five years, Visa will be no more. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> okay. It's not how the ecosystem works. So the team has to be knowledgeable. And again, the business model has to make sense. And the approach to the market and is all reasonable. We have to believe there's a need, et cetera, and that this has a, the right time, money, relationships and effort and execution can get to uh, a successful product. And again, it doesn't have to be a billion dollar company. We can make 4X on a $50 million exit if you price it right and do it that way. Um, we can make just as much of a multiple on a higher exit. Again, it all depends on kind of how you go in, have that experience to know kind of where it can go. But like I say, just point being, if anything in your stomach turns when you have a conversation with whether it's the investors, the board members, the management team, and you smell a fish, just walk away. Don't eat it. <laughs> and that's the beauty of a concentrated portfolio. You don't have to swing at every pitch. So you and your partner, Miles Kilburn, were somewhat early to the fintech party, having founded Mosaic 10 years ago. Looking back on the past decade, what would you say has been your favorite moment since founding Mosaic? Yeah, you know, I have to say the favorite moment was the closing of our first fund. It was no April 014. We closed on $13 million because we had five investments. And by the way, we, we managed uh, close to 200 now. But we had five investments because there was so much need for, for capital. We already lined up five. And we had to have a close. There was no option if we wanted to invest in these. So we closed on 13 and that fund quickly grew and the portfolio grew to uh, over 40 million in short order. But you know, well, Steve Martin says we were somebody then. Uh, what people, I think, don't understand is venture capital business is a business, right? We were entrepreneurs. We are entrepreneurs. It was our first fund, a startup, and we had all, all our connections and everything. But we're starting a business and asking people to give us money to believe in us. And we put together all of our you know, track record pre you know, being together and what have you and had a great story. But it is probably the hardest thing to do is to part people from their money on the hope and a prayer. <laughs> so we were a founder like any of our other founders uh, that we currently invest in. So we know exactly where they've been. So I guess the most gratifying moment was just getting off the ground. And every day since then has been equally gratifying. That's amazing. Still loving it 10 years in. It's good to hear. It is fantastic. Yeah. And what has been the biggest change in fintech in the last 10 years? And what will be the biggest change in the next 10? Yeah, and I think I somewhat covered it in the sense that in the last 10 years, and why we came to being... It's just the, I guess, I don't want to say, I hate to say it, but democratization of technology downstream. So what used to be just available to the enterprises at a high price point, processing power, et cetera, that allowed them to create product and, and to provide these services has plummeted, right? And which has allowed everybody from that industry who sees the pain points internally and says, I can do it better. And they go build it and go out there, can do it. So I think that has created the environment where you have just a wonderful array of smart people attacking every problem, real and imagined, unfortunately, but it's true, out there uh, is because of, of just that pure uh, processing. Again, it's kind of 
common stuff for us now, but people have to remember that cloud computing and the processing power we have today, just the data storage capacity we have today, let alone the internet rails and the throughput has only come about in the last 10 plus years, right? So going forward, again, it's all of that technology and has yielded so much more data from everywhere. And if you think Facebook has data on you, you should look at any financial institution that you have a banking account with, brokerage account with, or or what have you. Telecoms too, right? There is so much data they have about you, your every move. And so how basically one, just just aggregating that data, housing it, managing it, and then figuring out appropriate ways to use it in a highly regulated environment. And just a couple of days ago, there was a a wonderful article about DraftKings and, and, and the gambling industry. They want to use the data to entice their customers back, just like every other industry, except that in the gambling industry, you have addicts. (laughs) So, you know, there's this debate, well, is that appropriate use of data? So I think for the financial industry, the uses of data, the risks around data, and then the utility of data, because right now data isn't highly used, it's being aggregated, but it's challenging to use that data in a real-time basis. You have data scientists, you know, it's just, it's just too hard. So in fact, one of our companies on Scrambles that has a fantastic product for this, being able to empower, and actually Pure Nova does too, being able to take that data and make it usable within your operations daily on a real-time basis without the need for data scientists to crunch numbers for you is kind of the brass ring, if you will. So that's kind of where you know, we're focused on across a lot of our companies kind of going forward. Well, there's certainly a ton to look forward to in the years ahead. Now, are you ready to enter the lightning round? Sure. I'll try to be as lightning fast as I can. All right, great. Last fintech app you downloaded? Yeah, strangely enough, that'd be Venmo. I had to pay uh, my daughter's tennis coach. We will live in a cashless society by the year. Uh, This kind of actually ties back to my Venmo comment. I would say 2070 at the earliest. Okay, Uh, about 50 years. Yeah, if even, because here's the thing, cash has a unique place that you know gold is probably or any kind of precious thing you can touch that can't be had with Bitcoin or anything else. I mean, people forget that, by the way, Bitcoin can be traced. Everyone knows that you have, <laughs> you have a, it's a ledger that you can read. Now, all you have to do is match the account, right? The, the hash to the person, right? But through a wallet, what have you, and you know who they are. Cash is the only thing that is truly not traceable. So... I think it'll be a very long time for one cash just gets to a point where people don't feel secure using it. Um, and then when you go to uh, say it, the less the black market, gray market, et cetera, cash will always have a place and maybe it becomes just relegated to kind of those nefarious things, but um, it will, as other alternatives like a, like Bitcoin become regulated, like every financial solution is uh, cash becomes the only means to, transfer value in a very simple and untraceable way. So you talked a bit about Bitcoin. Companies with excess cash on their balance sheet should hold X percent of it in Bitcoin. Well, that's easy. That's zero. Bitcoin is a speculative asset and is not a store of value. You cannot have a store of value that is that volatile. So a company should never own it on their balance sheet as a short-term or long-term investment. God bless Tesla. Uh, What is the thing you miss most about being in the office? Uh, strangely enough, we don't really work from the office. We haven't worked for a while. I mean, obviously back in my days at Bucktail and Merrill, you know, we had offices and what have you. So again, we just, I don't miss it because we never really have it. 
what I miss are the business dinners, you know, breaking bread with your partners, your, your LPs, your uh, founders. There's nothing replaces that kind of togetherness, you know, talking business and non-business things. I think that's what I miss. Don't miss the office. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Howard. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the Warren FinTech podcast today. Thanks, Franz. Pleasure to be here. Great time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review the podcast. If you'd like additional content, please subscribe to the podcast channel or find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, or Twitter at Wharton FinTech. I'd also like to thank the podcast editor, Raphael Austria, for all his amazing work. Signing off, I'm Franz Raspin, and this has been the Wharton FinTech Podcast.